Over the last few weeks, there have been numerous allegations made towards me and my family without any proof or evidence, because there isn't any. This video explains in very simple terms all you need to know about certain events that have been mentioned and who the real finger of blame points to on Tyneside. Please make sure you share this video with friends and anyone you feel may need educating with the facts, not the fiction. Stephen Sayers, June 2021. Allegation number one. Stephen Sayers and members of his family are police informants. This is totally untrue, and the following evidence is the real story, presented with full transparency. This allegation has grown from a lie, first told in 1996 as Stephen and Michael Sayers faced charges, along with Nigel Abaddon, where it was alleged they blackmailed a local businessman. The local businessman can't be named for legal reasons, and his name is redacted in all paperwork. Then, as is happening now, the claim that the Sayers brothers are registered police informants was made, without proof or any evidence being shown, and as you will see now, as we show you all the evidence, it was a blatant attempt to deflect attention away from Joseph Hunt, who was the real informant in this case, whose assistance to the police earned him a greatly reduced sentence for a robbery charge he was facing at the time. In turn, Stephen and Michael received much larger sentences than the recommended length, and this has continued with all three brothers on each occasion they received a custodial sentence. Hardly the work of an informant. Until now, the real story has never been told, and the full chronology of these events will leave you in no doubt of what really happened. Our story begins in June 1996. Joseph Hunt is on remand awaiting trial for an unconnected robbery. He's become a registered informer to guarantee a lower sentence when his case comes to court and has already provided information that has led to the recovery of weapons and explosives. His solicitor writes the following letter to his co-accused, Tony Weldon, which clearly shows that he's trying to persuade Tony Weldon that Hunt is not an informer. Instead, he's trying to blame the Sayers brothers. This is the smoking gun that proves beyond all reasonable doubt that other people were attempting to fit the Sayers brothers up. I have nothing but the greatest of sympathy for you in your predicament. I know that Joe is so preoccupied with his own problems at the present time that he forgets the situation which you are in, and I shall certainly speak to him about that, because I agree, that is unfair. What I wanted to speak to you about were a couple of things. I had heard that you were contemplating cooperating with the police, and that has now been confirmed by a letter I have received from your solicitors. What I need to know is whether this cooperation includes giving evidence against my client. It is something I need to know in advance if I have to deal with it. I am not going to seek to persuade you in any way not to give evidence if that is your intention. I am well aware of the circumstances in which you find yourself and the fact that when there is no way to turn, you sometimes have to shake hands with the devil. In this case, the West Midlands Constabulary. I do, however, want to disabuse you of one notion. There is absolutely no way that Joe has ever given a name or a body to the police, whether in connection with this case or in connection with any other case. Anyone who says he has is doing so out of pure spite. If he had been willing to give names, or as you put it, getting certain people locked up, I suspect he would be on bail now, 
You are quite correct that he has taken steps to alert the police to the existence of firearms and explosives, in the hope that that might do him some good, but it goes no further than that. If West Midlands Police have told you that it goes further than that, then not only are they in breach of an undertaking given to the court not to disclose material heard in camera, they are also telling you lies in order to manipulate you for their own purposes. You can accept their word on this, or you can accept mine. Ultimately, it makes absolutely no difference to me, because I will simply deal with the evidence in this case professionally and to the best of my ability. I have no interest whatsoever in manipulating it in any way at all. I'm not involved in the same sort of mind games as the police, because I do not have the same interest in the matter. I have said what is set out above merely to put the record straight. If the information you have received with regards to getting certain people locked up emanates from the Sayers brothers, then I can tell you that those are equally false rumours. The Sayers brothers are locked up at the present time because they attempted to blackmail It is a well known fact that Joe's security business looked after property interests for some time, and the Sayers brothers are trying to make something more out of that than is in fact there. I imagine that they attempted to blackmail precisely because they knew that Joe was off the scene. My own view is that they had a great deal to do with him being off the scene, and my information is that they are responsible for both of you being in high-risk Category A security at the present time. The Sayers brothers are controlled by DC Henderson of NCIS. They informed to him regularly, and through him they had your security categorization changed. It was not aimed at you, but you were caught in the crossfire. I'm sure that if the police want you to cooperate, they will at some stage want you to give evidence against Joe, because their case is not that strong against him. It is far from a certain acquittal, as you seem to think in your letter, because of the forensic evidence which, on the face of it, looks as if it has been manufactured. The police are, however, likely to want you to inform on the name of the person who is presently at large. I would like to have that name as well, but unfortunately no one will tell me it. It would do my client a great deal of good if I had it, and if he knows it, certainly he will not tell me it. The point quite simply is that the police know that there were two people outside the security van. You have admitted to being one of them, and the other person is still at large. We both know that it was not Joe. The question, therefore, is who was it? I make no bones about the fact that if I had that information I would supply it to the police, and I would make sure that whoever gave it received credit for it, but I am not likely to obtain it, because certainly if my client knows it he will not tell me, or anyone else. That should really answer your point, that he is responsible for getting people locked up. That is entirely false, and no matter how much it hurts him I doubt if Joe will ever cross that line. I do not see anything wrong, however, with him handing in firearms to the police in the current climate. In fact, it is welcomed by them, and if it does do him some good, then so be it. The police have said to me that even though he will not give any names, the mere fact that dangerous weapons are off the street is a matter of great importance to them, because that weapon cannot fall into the hands of some maniac like the guy who murdered all those children in Dunblane. There are degrees of importance in these things. Every disabled firearm is a bonus, so far as the police are concerned. I think you're totally wrong to criticise Joe for doing that. It follows that you will not spend any time behind bars with the very same people Joe put there. I'm sorry, but I have to answer that criticism. It is simply not true. You are free to believe me or the others who talk to you on the same point, but you will find out ultimately that I'm right. No one can blame me for doing a deal if you see it as the only way out. You've been a client of mine for a long time and there might be circumstances in which I advise you to do the deal, but there are of course pros and cons. The first is that you will not get any promise from a police officer or precisely what deal he will do for you. He will simply tell you that he will have a word and he will let you build up your hopes into believing you will get the maximum discount for cooperation. 
when in fact you will probably find that the judge will add on to the range of potential sentences enough time to deduct subsequently. The fact is that at the end of the day the police will not keep their word to you and the judge will have no obligation to do so anyway. You may find that only lip service will be paid to the amount of discount and you will find yourself in a conversation afterwards with others who will say to you, look what you would have got if you had not cooperated. The truth is that we will never know. I've always felt that the numbers have been jigged somehow to end up with the right sentence. The process should be one of fixing the sentence and then discounting, but I think the judges usually get an idea of what is the right sentence and again, somewhat mysteriously, the mathematics tend to fit it. The second thing I wanted to talk to you about is the question of why you confessed to the offence so readily. There is no other material evidence against you so far as I can see. And I wanted to know if you'd received some inducement from the police at the very beginning of the interview procedure to give information so readily. I get the impression that West Midlands police are for some reason anxious to convict Joe. I do not know why. I am aware that they have already leaked information from the closed bail application I made on his behalf and that information has come full circle to you. Although it has been distorted several times in the process, it occurred to me that they may have started playing these mind games from the very beginning. If so, any inducement they gave you at the time has not proved very helpful so far. The only thing I can add to the above is that you are most welcome to stay in touch with me at any time, certainly after your sentence. If there is anything I can do to help you, I will, and I am only sad that I could not have done something earlier. I do not think you should punish yourself unduly that you confessed to the matter. I think at the end of the day it is likely to mean that you will receive a considerable reduction in the sentence, because it's generally accepted that a 25% discount should be given for an early guilty plea, and I have to say, from my experience of this case, that if you had not confessed your involvement in the matter, it may well have been that you would also find yourself on the receiving end of some mysterious forensic. I know it is an awful thing to say of the police, but unfortunately it really stares out from this case for anyone to see. The danger is, of course, that as soon as you call a police officer a liar or a cheat, the barrister waves your previous convictions before the jury and says, look who is calling this wonderful police officer a cheat. I quite appreciate that you cannot win. I can well understand you being resigned to feeling that you cannot beat them, join them. I do not propose to criticise that in any way at all. This extraordinary letter is passed to Richard Haswell, the Sayers brother solicitor, who can't believe it's been written by another solicitor to Weldon. Having spoken to Stephen and Michael, he urgently writes back to Hindle, initially to get confirmation the letter is even genuine, but also to request evidence to back up his claims, which are denied from the outset. Could you please confirm if this letter is genuine and has been sent from your office? If it is a genuine letter, could you please advise us, in relation to the first paragraph on page 4, how you state our clients are informants and are being run by DC Henderson of NCIS? Our clients are clearly upset at what has been written in this letter, as they are not police informants. You have placed their lives in danger. Furthermore, the contents of your letter concerning the Sayers brothers is clearly defamatory, in that you are stating categorically that they have blackmailed Mr. You are also stating that they were informants. We would like a response to this letter as soon as possible, please. Hindle writes back, refusing to give any further information, even telling Haswell he's passed his letter to the police. I have to say that coincidentally it arrived at the same time as the receipt of a communication from another client to the effect that your clients have made some personal threats against me from prison. I am sorry if they feel that I have done them a disservice, and I may say the following in relation to the letter to which you refer. 1. Any letter written to a potential witness in my client's trial is privileged. 2. The fact that Weldon has written a letter to your clients does of course strengthen the proposition that he was involved with them in some campaign against Mr Hunt. 
3. I would not impart any information in a letter unless I had credible material from a reliable source to enable me to do so. 4. I have spoken to Mr personally about his case and I am aware of the nature of the evidence against your client. I am sure that your letter is written with the best of intentions on behalf of your clients, but the coincidence of its receipt with the threats to which I have referred to has led me to communicate its contents to the police. I do not propose to amplify any material I have given you in this letter by way of further correspondence, and if you feel the need to issue proceedings against me, then please feel free to do so. In view of your client's present reduced circumstances, you will probably appreciate that I will be seeking security for costs. I do not think that there is anything useful I can add. So Haswell then writes directly to the officer named as the Sayers handler in Hindle's letter, stating unequivocally that the brothers are not informants and the danger they have been put in. We've been handed a letter from Hindle Campbell solicitors who state that our clients are police informants and that they are controlled by yourself. The position is that our clients are not police informants and feel that their lives have been put at risk by such information. We would therefore request by return letter confirmation that you do not have Stephen and Michael Sayers as police informants. We enclose their authority to divulge this information. Meanwhile, an already concerned Tony Weldon is now rattled. He's made his own inquiries in jail and having spoken to Hunt, he now knows for certain he's the informant. Hunt's done a deal and left him high and dry. He writes to a friend explaining the predicament he now finds himself in. I've known Hunt half my life, so believe me when I say I haven't turned against Hunt for nothing. So we've been nicked for this. I admitted to doing everything on this robbery just to give Hunt a chance to walk. That shithouse promised me the world. In January, Hunt got some additional forensic evidence, fibre lists from the getaway cars, etc. Because I was going guilty, I wasn't that interested in the forensic. Hunt told me that there were fibres from his jacket in the coats the robbers wore, and now it else, which was a lie. So Hunt has now come to my damper and said, the wobbly bots have threatened A couple of days later he gets a police visit, one of many. So he's got the busies coming down from Newcastle. I asked him what they wanted and he said they wanted to know if I had any AK-47s to hand in. Now I always had Hunt down as staunch, so I took his word for it. Next thing I know is, he's come to my door and said the wobbly bots are nicked, cameraed up, taped up, banged to rights. So I'm immediately thinking that there's a rabbit off. Puts bail up for Joe Hunt. Gets threatened. Hunt gets a police visit. The brothers get nicked. But because I thought Hunt was staunch, I just kept it in mind as I had no proof. Then we go up for our committal and Hunt's now totally convinced he's getting bail. Totally. But he's worried in case the busy slip witnesses into court to ID him. So this bloke keeps coming in and out of the courtroom. And I pointed him out to Hunt and I said, I know his face. I think he's a brief from Newcastle. Shithouse Hunt says, I've never seen him before. Face the front and listen to what's being said. So I've come back to the jail and Hunt has stayed behind for his bail appearance. As I was leaving the building, I noticed that the courtroom was emptied for his bail appearance. I asked him why and he said, Plan B. I said, so what the fuck is Plan B? He said, I've handed two kilos of Semtex and some firearms in. I've gone fucking crackers, but dickhead isn't bothered one bit. Next thing I know is he's gone armly. I was told from a reliable source that the police were taking him out of the jail. While he was away, I've had time to collect my thoughts. So when he came back, I asked him if he got the sayers nicked. He said, I told he was a straight kid and to go to the biz. So I'm starting to get a bit worried. Because as well as all this happening, Hunt is going on ridiculous on the landing. He's best pals with all the screws and the nonces. Respected villains are wanting nothing to do with him and are saying to me that they think he's dodgy. 
he's on the phone all day every day and we can only get no more than 10 minutes a day so I pulled him in front of the lads Bud Armstrong included and the shitbag has run onto the numbers I've also realised that this bloke in court who he said he didn't know was Hepworth I recognised him from the Brandling in Jesmond when I was red-eyed one night he's now on the numbers and refusing exercise he's still behind his door now 15 weeks later now what am I supposed to think? Are these the actions of a man who's done no wrong? After he's gone on the numbers, I've got this mad fucking letter off his brief. I'm well aware of police tactics and disinformation, police leaving documents around which get stolen, computer disks, etc. But my view is this, and this is the whole point of my letter. If the police set someone up as a grass, how could they do it through a solicitor? The solicitor would be wide open to being hung, drawn and quartered for making allegations like that. Also, I've had a letter to say that respected villains in Newcastle have been to Hindle, and Hindle has confirmed that he has information that the Sayers have been setting up people, pointing the finger at people for stuff that they haven't done, blaming people for things they've done themselves, taking reward money as well, and that the Sayers are under investigation for the false info they've given, along with their controller. These aren't my words, these words came from Hindle and Hunt. So can you see the predicament I'm in, Mickey? I'm not from the tune, and I want no part of this. I only got involved because I'm jointly charged with Hunt, Shit and Hunt is obviously up to his fucking ears trying to sort a deal to try and get off the hook with this charge. But Michael and Stephen should have Hunt's brief nick for slander. So what am I supposed to do? I respect you and Michael and Stephen and all the lads from Newcastle. I haven't had a crossword with anyone in Newcastle and I want to keep it that way. And at the end of the day I know he got Michael and Stephen nicked but I just don't know how. Mickey, I'm a staunch kid. Always have been, always will be. That is why I've told everyone about Hunt's antics. He's not only set Michael and Stephen up, but he's up to fucking all kinds of mad skullduggery just to get out. I'll help anyone and do good deeds for anyone who has respect from the likes of you, Mickey. But Mickey, you cannot put this on me when all of this madness is hanging around this case. Get Michael and Stephen to get Hindle Nick for slander. And show me evidence they've done no wrong and I'll help them all I can. I've fucked Hunt off because he's dealing with the busies. I'd have fucked my own brother off if he'd done what Hunt has done. Look, I've got a big jail sentence to do here. I'm staunch. I've never done any wrong, ever. You have to understand that I cannot get involved with this. This crack is going to go on for years, and I have family and friends to think of as well as myself. And until I get proof that both parties are innocent of the accusations against them, I'm staying well out of it. I respect what you say about Michael and Stephen, as I like both of them as well. But Mickey, this is heavy shit with the accusations and the horse shit being thrown in all directions. Please understand that. I cannot get involved in this. I'm standing up to be counted, and until I have proof of anything different, I'm sticking fast. And I hope I don't get slagged for taking this stance, as I feel I've got no option. But as I said, if I get proof of innocence, I will reassess the situation. Understand that I'm only doing what I feel is right under the circumstances. So now I find out that the forensic against Hunt is that fibres from his suit are on the coats the robbers wore in all the three getaway cars, and that he's got gunshot residue on the gloves he had on him. And seeing as he was nicked 20 yards from me, and that he has his filofax on him with my name in it, it looks like it's an uphill struggle for him to get a not guilty. But there's all kinds of evidence missing from the depths regarding Hunt. So what's happened in a nutshell is this. Hunt's got his forensic and he's known he's fucked. But he said fuck all about it to me, so he's handing in Semtex and guns and he's dealing with Hepworth, no ordinary policeman. Hunt now says after he went on the numbers that the police revealed to him that the Sayers were grassing, so he's put them in back. And here I am, stuck in the middle of it. I mean, how could Hunt ever say he wasn't up to no good? How can he, when he's had the commander of the RCS come into court to shout in favour of bail for Hunt behind closed doors? 
I'm not prepared to take the chance that he hasn't gone copper. And after he trots onto the numbers, he refuses exercise and hasn't been out of his damper for 15 weeks. Believe me, the block isn't a pretty sight here at the green. So being a staunch kid like I am, I'm having nothing at all to do with this. Put yourself in my shoes, Mickey, bearing in mind that I've got a big jail sentence to do. I'm doing what I feel is right for myself, my family and friends. Unless I get concrete evidence to say otherwise, I have no option but to stay by that. As I said before, this isn't going to go away overnight. There'll be bother over this forever. Hunt's got himself into this so he can get himself out of it. And as for Michael and Stephen, I can't help. There's too much trouble brewing and I'm staying out. Now he knows the truth, Weldon decides to make a statement. I wish to make this statement because I feel that a number of things have been said which are untrue and inaccurate, and I wish to put this right, and I have detailed information and am one of the few people who can do it. When I was originally arrested for armed robbery, my co-accused Joseph Hunt and I were placed in a prison in the Midlands. When we were in prison, Joseph Hunt told me that Stephen Sayers and Michael Sayers had used their influence with the police to make sure that we became Category A prisoners. When you're remanded, you're normally a Category B prisoner, but if the police believe you to be an escape risk or information is provided, then you can be classified as a Category A high risk, and this restricts your movement and placement. I've known Joseph Hunt for most of my life and regarded him at that stage a very good friend. When he told me this, I believed him. I had known Stephen and Michael Sayers for much less time and thought that I could trust them, but when this information came through to me I was very suspicious of them and very annoyed at their intervention to get myself and Joseph Hunt's Category A prisoners. During the time that we were on remand in the Midlands we had to make a number of appearances at the Magistrates Court. On one occasion there was an application made for bail by Joseph Hunt and at that application information was put forward that who was a local businessman would be prepared to stand surety in the sum of £1 million. This is the figure I was told from Joseph Hunt. I do not know the exact figure of how much he was putting forward. I do know that Hunt and worked together. Hunt was security advisor, but had a good friendship with him. Joseph Hunt was somebody who knew how to handle himself. At this bail hearing, I was not present, but I heard that DCI Hepworth had been there and had made an application for bail on Joseph Hunt's behalf. When I got this information, I was very shocked and surprised. I could not understand why a police officer of his rank wanted to do Joseph Hunt a favour. It also made me start to become very suspicious of Joseph Hunt. Again, he was a very close friend and at this stage I could not doubt him and I thought that he must have a plan. I was told by Joseph Hunt that the reason that DCI Hepworth was there was clearly that he had done a deal with Hepworth to throw in some Semtex and some guns and obviously would keep Hepworth happy and this was the reason why the police were putting info or bail for him. Joseph Hunt did not get bail. He was told by Hepworth that he could get 80 to 20 years for the armed robbery. The next thing that happened was that I had heard that Michael Sayers and Stephen Sayers had been arrested for blackmailing. I also heard from the Sayers brothers that Joseph Hunt, who was a friend of, had set them up and was in close contact with, and was calling the shots in this case. Hunt's friend, Peter Logan Donnelly, I heard, was also involved and had actually visited on the day the telephone interception equipment had been installed in home. I spoke to Joseph Hunt about this and he said that Stephen and Michael Sayers were informants and he cannot grasp grasses. Again I could not believe what had happened and I was losing all my faith in Joseph Hunt. Another prisoner arrived called Bud Armstrong and I told him about my worries. I was clearly worried because Joseph Hunt was my co-accused and if he was doing deals with the police it would be to my disadvantage. 
Bud Armstrong went straight to Hunt's cell and confronted him about the Sayers being informants, and within half an hour Hunt had taken all of his equipment and had gone into the segregation unit. This was obviously starting to be proof that Hunt was informing on the Sayers brothers and that he was worried for his own safety. You do not go into the segregation unit in situations like this. If he'd been speaking the truth, he would have been able to stay on the wing and sort it out. The next thing that happened was I was in the Category A unit and my window overlooks the exercise yard and it can be opened. I saw Hunt through my cell window and I started to talk to him. Hunt confirmed that he grasped the Sayers but that you cannot grasp on grassers because they're already paid informants. He also said that DCI Hepworth was going to help him with his sentence and he might get an 11 year sentence rather than an 18 to 20 year sentence for the work that he'd done. I could not believe it. I was disgusted. That was one of the few occasions I saw Hunt. The next thing that happened was that Joseph Hunt's solicitor Clive Hindle wrote me a letter in which he stated that Stephen Sayers and Michael Sayers were informants and that they'd been handled by a National Criminal Intelligence Service Officer, DC Henderson. This information again muddied the waters and I could not believe who was telling the truth. From this point on I kept a distance from both the Sayers brothers and Joseph Hunt. I simply wanted to keep out of the crossfire so that nothing would affect me. On the day of our trial Hunt went alone on the Monday and pleaded guilty. My barrister John Lowe and my QC were there and they said that he had his sentence reduced from 18 to 20 years to 11 years and this was for the information he'd given in relation to the Sayers brothers and Hepworth was there. When this information came back I was devastated because this was the final proof that Joseph Hunt was an informant. During the time when I learnt this information to today's date I have tried to keep my head down and keep away from trouble because I did not want to lose any chance of parole. I'm now a Category B prisoner, but feel that enough things have been said which are totally untrue about the Sayers brothers and I want to put things right. I've spoken to Stephen Sayers on a couple of occasions but have never told him the full story. The first time I told anyone the full story was to a solicitor, Mr Richard Haswell, who came down to see me in Franklin Prison on the 15th of October 1998. I wish to state that this is a true and accurate statement and I am prepared to attend court and give evidence if necessary to put right or wrong. This statement consisting of five pages each signed by me is true to the best of my knowledge and belief and I make it known that if it is tendered in evidence I should be liable to prosecution if I have willfully stated in it anything which I know to be false or do not believe to be true. Questions are now being asked in the corridors of power about the use of informants by Northumbria Police. This letter from the same time period is from David Cleland MP. I write to clarify certain incidents which have taken place in Newcastle and its surrounding area. 1. These incidents may well directly involve your constituents who are not in a position to complain to you by virtue of the fact that the truth is being hidden from them under the cloak of the Official Secrets Act. 2. These incidents raise grave concern into the way Northumbria Police have carried out operations in your constituency. Three. Attempts were made at Newcastle Crown Court to clear the public gallery for evidence to be given in secret against all the principles of British justice and democracy to cover up Northumbria Police's role in this scandal. 4. These incidents and others like them are occurring all over Britain are a damning indictment of the policies adopted by the Conservative Government, the party of law and order, to combat the ever-growing menace of illegal drugs. These policies designed to stem the flow of drugs in and into Britain have been a total disaster in this respect, I write to you as an MP for Newcastle and an opposition MP. The incidents in the Newcastle and South Shields areas relate to the activities of two Newcastle gangsters named Patrick Conroy and David Glover, their gang and a gangster from Leeds named Ronald Priestley. 
I enclose a copy of witness statements of Detective Sergeant Ian Graham Smith and of Detective Sergeant Inspector Keith Felton that were produced at Newcastle Crown Court for Glover's defence. 6th of September 1992, Glover is in custody for beating a man unconscious. 21st of September 1992, Keith Felton, head of Northumbria Drug Squad, obtained authority for Glover to be freed and for him to take part in an entrapment operation involving drugs. From my own records, I know that around this time, Patrick Conroy was arrested in the Newcastle area in possession of a large quantity, kilos, of amphetamine. Several days later, Conroy was released from custody without charge. October 1992. From October, Glover and now Conroy, working under police supervision, took full advantage of their impunity from prosecution and embarked on a spree of shootings and committed at least three kidnappings involving blackmail, extortion and torture. These offences were all committed while Glover and Conroy were working under the police supervision of Detective Chief Inspector Keith Felton, head of Northumbria Drug Squad. March 1994. Matters were finally forced to a head when the family of a young man who had been kidnapped and was being held captive until a ransom demand of £80,000 was paid went and lodged an official complaint with the police. Conroy, Glover and Ronald Priestley of Leeds were all arrested and charged with kidnap, extortion, blackmail and torture. The young man they had kidnapped was not their intended victim and was in fact the wrong man. April 1994, Conroy and Glover escaped from a prison van custody in an armed ambush. September 1994, £11 million worth of cannabis was found by police on board a yacht owned by Philip Berryman. November 1995, Philip Berryman was found not guilty of importation of £11 million worth of cannabis. Berryman's defence was that he was forced by threats from a gangster against the lives of his children, aged 6 and 12, to transport the drugs. The gangster was named by Berryman in court as Paddy Conroy. December 1995. At the trial of Conroy and Glover, an attempt was made to clear the public gallery of the court for evidence to be heard in secret of Glover's role working undercover for senior police officers. Quite clearly, this was an attempt by Northumbria police to cover up their role in this scandal. December the 9th, 1995. Witnesses for the prosecution had to be placed in the witness protection scheme. They had to leave their homes, jobs, family and friends to be moved to a new town and to be given new identities. All this because they gave evidence against Conroy and Glover, whom were only at liberty to commit these same offences by virtue of the fact that most serious charges had been quashed by the police for them to work for the police under police supervision. Had Glover not brought this evidence to light, these matters would very conveniently have been covered up under the cloak of the Official Secrets Act. In respect of Ronald Priestley, Priestley is a millionaire drug dealer from Leeds. 25th of November 1991, £600,000 of cocaine was found together with equipment for the manufacture of crack by police in Riverside property owned by Priestley. Priestley is charged with running a crack factory. 9th of June 1992, Priestley gets bail. March the 3rd 1994, a mock trial was arranged for Priestley at Leeds Crown Court. The judge threw the case out, this despite overwhelming evidence of Priestley's guilt. March 29, 1994. 26 days after his ordered acquittal, Priestley is arrested and charged for kidnap, extortion and blackmail. Conroy and Glover are his co-accused. May the 19th, 1994, Priestley gets bail again. September 1995. 
kidnap, extortion, blackmail charges against Priestley are shelved. This despite tape recorded and video evidence against him. The kidnap victim had to be released from the captivity of Conroy and Glover in an armed siege by police. Last year, at an inquiry by the Association of Chief Police Officers, the inquiry warned that the police network of informants was out of control. It said informants had dictated the course of many investigations and even influenced prosecutions. The tail is wagging the dog, said one researcher. Statement of Keith Felton I am a Detective Chief Inspector with the Northumbria Police currently stationed at Wall's End as Crime Manager. Throughout 1992, I was a Detective Inspector attached to the Northumbria Police Drug Squad. In September of 1992, I was contacted by Detective Sergeant Smith of South Shields CID in relation to information into the activities of the Conroy family. As a result, I was introduced by Sergeant Smith to David Glover at South Shields Police Station. Subsequent to this meeting, David Glover was recruited by me as a police informant under the pseudonym Adrian Scott. On 21st of September 1992, in agreement with Adrian Scott, I obtained authority for the informant to participate in an operation in which controlled drugs were to be delivered to an address on Tyneside. The operation was codenamed Chestnut Mare. In January 1997, Stephen pleaded guilty and was sentenced to 10 years in prison for conspiracy to blackmail. Three times the guidelines at the time for a guilty plea. After helping the police by informing on the Sayers brothers, Joseph Hunt received a 10 year sentence for armed robbery. Similar cases at the time, where as in Hunt's case someone had been shot, were attracting sentences of 20 years. Conroy's sentence for an armed escape where a prison officer was injured was, wait for it, 50% lower than the expected sentence at the time. More facts. Gil Smith did not attend court. He was not Stephen Michael or John Henry's handler. There is no proof from the Crown that the Sayers family are police informers. Conroy has simply selected parts of the evidence we have shown in this video to fit his lies. Now you've seen it all. Lie detector tests are not accepted as evidence in UK courts. Even if they were, Conroy's would be null and void due to his continual cannabis use, as demonstrated in his videos. Fast forward two decades and as Stephen Sayers is writing his best-selling book, Tried and Tested at the Highest Level, his publisher receives this letter from respected true crime author Stephen Richards. As you will see, his own research concluded that DC Henderson, the officer Hindle alleged to have been Stephen and Michael's handler, did not exist. Case closed. Almost. One other thing. In 2016, Stephen Sayers found himself back in court, charged with malicious communications against a Mr. P. Conroy, who had made a five-page statement against him. The allegation stemmed from this Facebook post, written by Conroy, which Stephen had commented on on his own social media pages. Some spam came through on the family computer one night many years ago. Porn spam. I showed my then missus it straight away, said, look what has happened. 
She said that the girl on the porn did not even look 16 and get that shit deleted off our computer straight away. It came through when we were downloading music and films etc, legal stuff. I deleted it straight away and that was the end of the matter, or so we thought. Nobody else ever seen it except us two. No cops ever got involved, nobody ever got questioned about it or anything else like Sayers is saying on his Facebook posts etc as nobody has ever found any stuff on our computers. Nobody blamed anyone else for it neither. It never came into the equation as I was never questioned about it by anyone and the police don't even know about it to be honest. Just me, me ex-missus and the lie detector bloke who told me it was spam and they had lie detected another 17 people for exactly the same stuff just the month previous to me. All spam he said and I passed my lie test for it folks which I took voluntary. That is exactly what happened. I never even wanted to mention this to be honest but that's what happened okay but I passed my lie detector test for it. And just last month alone I got spam porn another 15 times on my Facebook accounts. That's the 100% facts concerning what Sayers has been saying. Witness Statement of Patrick James Conroy I am the above named person and I reside in an address known to the police. For years now I've had problems with the Newcastle family known as the Sayers. I do not want to talk about the problems with the family in the past. However, there has been some incidents over recent weeks which I have to comment on. I have had numerous Facebook accounts over the years. Some of them have now been closed down. I am constantly using two accounts, both under the name Paddy Conroy. The two accounts I have at the moment I use to talk about problems I've had with the Sayers family and the problems I have with Northumbria Police. I had an account under my name which was closed down by Facebook approximately three weeks ago. This account was opened under the following email address conroy paddy at yahoo.co.uk Attached to this account I had an arts page which I used to promote drawings I had done myself. Around five months ago there were some offensive comments placed on the wall of this page. These comments were written on this page from the profile of a male I know to be Stephen Sayers. Sayers is constantly receiving a lot of publicity in relation to a book he has released. Sayers has written about me in this book which has been published. On this occasion Sayers placed around 20 messages on my page which were all offensive. These messages stated that I was a paedophile and stated that I had been arrested for these type of offences. I only read a few of these messages before deleting them all so that nobody else could read them. I immediately blocked Sayers from the page. This profile has been closed down now, as I mentioned earlier. Sayers has a few Facebook accounts which he is constantly using. He has Stephen Sayers, which shows him in Ellswick Road, having attended St Mary's Comprehensive. He also has the Stephen Sayers group page. Sayers uses these groups to promote his book and to comment on other things. Over recent months I have been sent several attachments from friends showing me comments that Sayers has made about me. These comments have been offensive and he's branded me as a paedophile. The comments have led to people commenting on the site when threats towards me have been made. People have been saying things like he wants his throat cut and he should get shot in the nut which is clearly aimed at me. Sayers has continually placed comments like this on his profile which has led to offensive things being said about me. All these comments are making people think badly of me. I do not go into Sayers' profile to look in the comments, as they are offensive. He has continued to post these comments 
branding me a paedophile throughout this time. On Wednesday, 17th of February 2016, I received a message from a friend who had just seen Sayers' Facebook page. This comment read, For over 20 years we have had to listen to this rambling slander of Paddy, the jealous grass. Will shag your kids given half the chance? Confirm this man was arrested for thousands of hardcore graphic images of child pornography in his personal computer over the space of two years. This post had been seen by 5,000 people and had been read by lots of others. This comment, along with all of the others, I find to be very offensive. I believe that Sayers is putting these comments in due to ongoing investigations between me and his family. I was very upset about the words and I feel like killing him. It's caused a lot of trouble between me and my family. I'm concerned about some of the threats that have been made. People get done for false allegations like this. I am concerned as Sayers has a lot of influence with a lot of people. Sayers does not have the right to say these things about me. I am willing to abide by the decision of Northumbria Police in relation to this matter. Victim personal statement. This incident has caused me a lot of problems with my family due to the false allegations. I've had to stop all of my children's charity work in the area. I've been distressed as a result of his claims. I've been distressed as a result of his comments. I would like this statement read out on my behalf at court. I've told the police to go and check if I've been arrested for these type of things. This will prove that I've not been questioned for any sexual offence. This letter sent to Stephen by his solicitor when the case concluded states quite clearly what was said and accepted as a statement of fact in open court and confirms that Stephen is not a police informer and that Conroy admitted on his own social media account that he got spam porn another 15 times. You can view the original documents used in this video by clicking the link in the description. Coming soon, the truth behind Conroy and Operation Insight.